0: Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court, back in session. And, Richard, in the throes of a presidential campaign with more storylines than any of our brains are designed to process, it is easy to forget about the, the prosaic work of actually governing, uh, but it is happening at the Supreme Court. The new term has just opened up. Thus far, it's looking like a quieter session than we've seen in a while, although there's a lot of decisions yet to be made on which cases are gonna be taken. But let's start with the one case that is already getting some attention. In fact, it's an issue with the campaign, um, especially with Amy Coney Barrett's television of the court looking like it's coming soon. And this is the Obamacare case, California v. Texas. So what's at issue here is that when the court considered the ACA back in 2012, It upheld the individual mandate under Congress's taxing power. Our listeners will probably remember that was a conclusion on which Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberals on the court. And then under the Trump administration's tax reform package a few years ago, the financial penalty that was imposed by the individual mandate for people who didn't purchase insurance was zeroed out. And the argument in this case is that this provision can no longer be justified under the taxing power because it no longer extracts any money which sounds like a relatively trifling matter until you get to the implications of that challenge, which is the argument that the mandate is not severable from the rest of the law. And if the mandate goes, the entire Affordable Care Act has to go. So Richard, is this is this a formidable challenge or is this a little bit more of a Hail Mary?
1: Um, this is Hail Mary and there's no grace that will fulfill it. <laughs> I, I, I think that this is – Preposterous is too strong a word, but wildly improbable is, I think, appropriate. First, let's go back to the bidding. And originally, if you recall, all the people who wanted to attack uh, Obamacare, what they did is they zeroed in on the individual mandate. And there was this learned debate under the Commerce Clause as to whether or not, under the power to regulate commerce, you could force people to eat broccoli or to acquire assurance. And in my own view about that issue at the time was that you could look at it in two ways. If you did this as more or less an originalist and you weren't bound by Wicked and Filburn, which says feeding your own uh, crops to your own cows is interstate commerce, um, what would happen is that you would strike it down. Uh, But if you accepted the modern views, then all of these curl accused associated with mandates and non-mandates would be a mistake. Uh, What happened is Chief Justice Roberts uh, looked at this, and he kind of accepted the argument that the mandate becomes coercive, and so therefore the commerce power argument failed. And then he looked to the taxing power. And my view is that the correct way to look at the taxing power is the way in which it was done in the child labor tax cases in 1923 or so, whereas if something fails the commerce clause for regulation, it fails the uh, tax power uh, with respect to taxation. And the theory goes back to the modern theory of regulation, that taxation is in general supposed to be a substitute for regulation. And in several cases, most notably in Hammer and Dagenhart, followed by the child labor tax cases in 1923, what the Supreme Court did is it said, first, you can't condition um, the ability to sell your goods in interstate commerce on your willingness to exceed to a child labor maximum hours law. And then five years later, unanimously, the Supreme Court said, if you can't do it by uh, direct regulation, you can't impose a tax equal to 10% of the total net proceeds of the business on the sale of the first unit in interstate commerce. So if you took that particular view, which the Chief Justice did not, uh, then the substitutability of the two statutes would have doomed this not only under the Commerce Clause but under the taxing power. What he did, however, was to take a completely different line and to insist that there was a vast amount of discretion that was available to you under the taxing power and that we therefore had the power not only to impose taxes but to recharacterize the penalty, if that's what you thought it was, into a tax. Um, And then he had some very long and learned discussions about why it is that the ambiguity between these two classes is so great and that therefore, given the enormous discretion that we have, it's going to sustain itself. But that was the way it goes. Now you get rid of this, and what happens is the uh, opponents of this particular tax are claiming that it can no longer be a tax, or the, the bill it can no longer be a tax because there's nothing collective. What they don't do is look at the other half of the case and say, now, you don't have the mandate. Is there going to be any problematic issue under the Commerce power? And I think the answer to that question has to be no. Uh, What the Commerce Clause now says is, can you regulate this vast industry? And given the indirect effects test, you surely can. Are you making people eat broccoli when you require them uh, not to have a mandate? You drop that requirement. The answer is there's no problematic nation. So I think that the correct analysis is uh, you may be right opponents on the tax side of this but you're now wrong for the same reason on the Commerce Clause side of it. Uh, So the thing becomes constitutional in another way. You could try to make a very exotic argument uh, that once it's sustained only on the taxing power, you cannot, when it's modified, resustain it under the Commerce power. But if it's a new kind of legislation, it seems to me that uh, you'd be whistling in the dark if you're gonna try to get the Supreme Court to overthrow this kind of statute on that kind of a semi-technical argument. So my view about it is that. This is not a close challenge. It is not something that I would vote to support. My own view is if you actually look at the internal structure of the Affordable Care Act, it contains so many confusions, contradictions, and mistakes that what you can do is actually find a way uh, to keep the basic framework and to vastly improve its performance. Uh, Some of this is on pre-existing conditions. Some of this is on essential services. uh, But those details have no constitutional significance. So I predict that this particular uh, maneuver will fail.
0: There is one other case that the court has taken up so far that looks to have the kind of culture war underpinnings that tend to bring national attention. And this is the case of Fulton v. Philadelphia. And so what's at issue here is a decision by the city of Philadelphia to cut off referrals of foster children to Catholic social services because Catholic social services, in keeping with the tenets of their faith, are unwilling to certify homosexual couples as foster parents. So walk us through this, Richard. What are the grounds on which Catholic social services are challenging that policy?
1: Well, the grounds are going to be essentially to interference with their rights of the free exercise of their religion when the government attaches a condition on the way in which they can and cannot deal with children. And they're going to argue to some extent that this is also an interference with their ability to express their views on a freedom of speech basis. As usual, I think in these cases, the religious argument is stronger than the speech argument. This is not a new issue. There was a case called Wilder and Bernstein, which I wrote about some 30 years ago, in which the city of New York has essentially made the same kind of argument that uh, whatever the issue was, we will not allow people to take foster care if they're not prepared to allow people to have abortion. So it's, again, a Catholic church, and it's the same question. Uh, you require them to violate the tenets of their religion in order to be into the program. Uh, the reason why this case has a huge Amount of potential is back of it is one of the worst decisions that I think Chief, late Justice Anthony Scalia pale. It was a case of the Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith, and this was a situation in which there was a question of whether or not conduct was illegal. Uh, when somebody smoked peyote uh, as part of an Indian ritual and service. It's interesting to realize that this was not a criminal prosecution, uh, because in that case, the prosecutor said, why would I ever want to uh, prosecute somebody who's following rigid religious guidelines on the ingestion of peyote? This is not overdosing. This is not JAG. This is not nothing. And so he refused to prosecute. But then when there's an employment application, about an application for unemployment insurance, what comes out is the following objection. Well, this thing was illegal and now, collaterally, oh, we cannot allow you to get un- unemployment benefits because of illegal conduct. What happened is, at that point, as is going to be the case here, uh, Smith goes forward with the argument, look, There is a situation where the law has always understood that when you're dealing with religion, generally applicable neutral laws have to give away to make accommodations for people who have sincere religious beliefs. And so to put it in its most extreme form, uh, the army has a general rule which requires people to eat pork and bacon. And now you have Muslim or Jewish individuals who find this trafe and unforbidden. Is the army going to force them to eat it? And the general view under these circumstances, is, you could find some substitute for this stuff. It's not the end of the world. Uh, forcing people to choose between service in the military, which they may be obliged to do, or even would hope to do, and foregoing their religious beliefs is simply an utterly unacceptable kind of choice, and so therefore we require the accommodation to be made. If your religious beliefs, however, require you in the middle of a battlefield uh, to put on a white turban and to light whites and to stand up in the middle of the field in order to do your evening prayers where everybody else is going to get shot, you can say sorry. At this point, the balance runs in the opposite direction. Whenever you run a case like a balance like this, uh, you have easy cases on one side, you have easy cases on the other, but think of this like a balance wheel in which the cases in the middle could get closer and closer together. And you realize that what you have here is a principled distinction, which will yield some very difficult cases at the margin. So now when you move into this particular situation, what the church is saying, look, we're not going to say uh, that the city of Philadelphia cannot uh, field adoptions for same-sex couples. Um, if there are parents who want these same-sex couples uh, to take it, then by all means, they should be able to do so. So the church here, as it is in so many other the cases uh, that are dealing with they're saying, not that you can't do it with other people, you can't make us do it. So this is a kind of a rerun of the contraceptive cases uh, where it turns out the churches are perfectly prepared and the evangelical Christians are to say, uh, the government can dispense this assistance to other individuals with tax dollars, but it can't require us to participate in this. Uh, on the condition that uh, you won't be able to get any funds or participate in the Affordable Care Act unless you play this game. And I think that they are exactly right on this end. So what you have to do is you have to uh, think of the equity. Uh, it turns out that since they are not trying to make the strong claim that the disposition by the state to same-sex couples is illicit, uh, the question is, how does this limit in any way, shape, or form the options that the state has when it comes to trying to find suitable placement uh, for adopted parents? What happens is the Catholic Church says, we will only take a subset of these cases. We will only take them in place adoptions with couples which are not same-sex couples. Obviously uh they're not going to be able to get people who want to have same-sex couples do adoption handle through the church um but if it's a you know, if the, if the birth mother or the birth parents in fact all agree that they prefer to have a Catholic dream, why is it that if these parents have strong Catholic beliefs that they're not going to be able to run the placement through the Catholic Church? What's the interest on the state to stop that as a matching situation? Certainly if you ran a private adoption service, they would be quite happy to honor this. And so if you look at the public interest on this, uh, what the city of Philadelphia is doing is reducing the options available to parents, reducing the number of foster homes that are going to be available. And they are not advancing in the slightest the interest of people who want to have same-sex couples, uh, because now, in effect, uh, all the people who might have gone um, in the system are going to come here and it's going to reduce the number of pressures on people who want same-sex couples. So it seems to me that this is the classic kind of a case. And so what's wrong with Smith? It's the unconstitutional conditions doctrine all over again. It may be you could keep everybody out of the adoption people or you could get them into the adoption people, but you cannot use the power of the state to skew preferences uh, that otherwise exist. So if in a non-government world, it turns out that both Same sex couples and non same couples uh, can adopt uh, parents, Uh, then in effect, uh, you should reflect that when it comes through the state. The state should not be able to skew the balance so that somebody who could enter legitimately into the field when there's no government intervention is precluded from the field the moment that the government comes in. I hope they overrule Smith. Uh, It is quite possible given the general tendencies of Justice Roberts that they will try to find some narrower ground on this. There are many religious cases that have, in fact, are gone in favor of the religious group without an explicit overruling of Smith. My guess is the case should be overruled. It is one of the most profoundly misguided decisions ever that has come down. The neutrality rule just does not cover the, re- the, the, the real relevant interests in this particular case, and it should be forthwith disposed of.
0: Final thing I'll ask you about for this upcoming year at the court, there are all of these 11th hour adjustments happening with voting procedures in the states because of COVID. A lot of them terminating in lawsuits that are ending up before the court. The court just reinstated a requirement in South Carolina that requires a witness to sign on absentee ballots. It's going to be ruling any time now on a new provision in Pennsylvania that would extend how many days after the election absentee ballots can come in, still be counted. Fair to say, I think, that we've got some measure of chaos in the States, which is inevitably trickling up towards the courts. How much of a role should we expect the judiciary to be playing in the, the outcome and conduct of this election?
1: Boy, is that a hard question. I think the Supreme Court should probably end up having to play a role because you need a unified set of rules in these particular cases. The question is, how do you try to figure out what the basic rules and structures are? If you go back to Bush v. Gore, uh, one of the things that you discover is that the provisions say that it's the legislature within any given state that sets the rules of engagement by which these elections are going to be covered. And so this is part of the endless federalism system that developed at a time when, in effect, the if you recall that the electoral college was arguably a deliberative body, and that the state conventions would start to meet to figure out whom they sent to the national government, for so forth. And it was also a time in which there was direct no direct election of senators; it was done essentially through the legislature. So the basic text, I think, is that the legislatures are supposed to have a complete control over this. In Bush v. Gore. The issue came to a head when it turned out that the court in Florida on the third time round was willing to say that if the legislature appointed the Republican secretary of state to do the counting, we regard this as sufficiently obnoxious uh, that we're not going to allow it to happen. Uh, so there was at least some effort to try to undermine that exclusivity. When it got to the Supreme Court, several of the justices believed that this was a strong argument. But in order to get the five-member majority on this, I think it was with O'Connor and Stevens, they trumped up what I regard as a very phony equal protection argument about why it is that the ballots had to be counted in a certain fashion. So, when you start moving forward to this case, you see exactly the same thing. COVID comes in, it has, no one will doubt, somewhat of a disparate impact on poor people, somewhat of a disparate impact on people of color, and so the question is what accommodations ought to be made, and if so, by whom? The correct way to deal with this under the traditionalist view is that the legislature can look at this situation. can decide for better or for worse uh, that it's going to change the particular rules in ways that will facilitate which ways can they change if you looked at the south carolina position it turned out there were two holdings one of which got all the play and the other which is actually more important the one that got all the play was the question as to whether or not you could waive the witness requirement the grounds being for waiving the requirement That shut-ins could not get assistance. The answer to that is if you really believe that this is a problem, uh, various kinds of uh, religious groups or political groups can systematically supply witnesses for these various peoples, and you can beat the system within the game. You don't have to simply rely upon family members to come if it turns out they're uncomfortable to do so. And so it's not really necessary. Uh, But the judge said, oh, that's not quite right. And then she kind of said that, well, the equal protection challenge is sufficiently strong in this particular case, uh, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to overrule that. But at the same time, there was a question before her as to whether or not you could extend the voting period. And she refused to do that. And she was right. Uh, That's a particular case where there's a rigorous timetable that's going to follow after you get the votes, how you count them, how you tabulate them, how there can be judicial reviews when the electoral college meets and so forth. And so if you start saying that you can go beyond this particular period, in for a dime, in for a dollar, they said six days. Well, if six days is something, what about 12 days? And by the time you're done, you can have wholesale chaos. I think, in effect, that is also correct. So, my view about this is that the constitutional, the dominant interest is in the integrity of the ballots. Uh, incidents of fraud, which may be very uncommon under other settings, are going to be much more likely to happen here because of a serious chain of control, uh, chain of custody. If these dials could be stuffed in, they could be taken out, they can be discretionary in terms of their reading. Every state's going to do it somewhat differently. It's pandemonium. So I think, in effect, that the operative constitutional rule should be that if the legislature, as is almost always the case traditionally, has the election day as the final day for which you could submit them, um, absentee ballots or mail ballots and so forth, uh, that no court under the Equal Protection Clause should be able to deal with that My hope would be that the Supreme Court would take that issue up. It could have taken it up in the last time when there was an effort to try to enjoin the witness requirement. They didn't mention it in that particular case. What I would have hoped they had done was to say, at this particular point, it looks to us that the decision that the judge made on that other issue is, in fact, the correct issue. I suspect it will come up, in my view, unless you get a national decision on that particular question, Uh, this election will become total pandemonium, and Bush v. Gore will look like a Tea Party.
0: You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.